RNMD is a show about hospital relationships from the perspective of doctors and nurses. You're very smart, and we know that you would never come to a podcast for medical advice. So obviously, call your non-podcasting doctor and nurse team if you need any medical care. Oh, and we should also mention that we don't represent any hospital at all, ever. Okay, start the thing. And welcome to another episode of RNMD, a show about doctors and nurses working together in this mad world of medicine. Oh my God, today I had the best guest. I have Melissa, who is an RN working in primary care in a clinic in North Brooklyn in an underserved community, and Dr. Singer, who she works with. Dr. Singer is an extremely passionate, hands-on, caring doctor who cares a lot about the topic of primary care and prevention of hospital admissions and specifically chooses uh, both of these healthcare providers providers choose to work in an underserved area because that's their passion and that's their focus. And I love it. And I love the energy that they bring. I'm just so excited. So we had a lot to say about this. So halfway through, I decided, listen, we're going to need to dive into this even further. This is at least a two-part episode, maybe even three-parter. So we're going to see how it goes, but I hope you guys love listening to them. They are so smart and thoughtful and have so many good ideas of how how we can help our patients and how we can actually um, use our skills to do what we're supposed to be doing, which is helping the patients in more than one way, preventing admissions, helping them improve their outcomes, helping them take ownership of their own care instead of just throwing pills down somebody's throat and they don't understand why they're on certain meds or they don't come to their follow-ups because they don't feel heard. Um, we, we had some really great conversations and I hope that they will join me again in the future so we can explore this huge, broad topic even more. Okay, enough from me. Take it away. Let's go. First of all, I'm very excited about this topic. Thank you both for joining. Yes, thank you for having us. Um, We're excited. Yay, I'm excited too. So if you want to just introduce yourselves quickly first before we start. Okay, so my name is, we're using full names, right? My name is Karen Singer. I'm a primary care doctor um, and I work uh, with Melissa at a clinic um, that is a clinic attached to a hospital, meaning it's actually part of the hospital um, in uh, an underserved area, North Brooklyn. Um, and we're here today to talk about our amazing team and how we collaborate and work together to take care of our patients the best that we can. So hello, everyone. Sorry, I'm like super nervous. But um, I'm Melissa, and I work with Dr. Singer. And we both started relatively around the same time, like I started two months before her. So it was like a unique setup, because I was new to the hospital, and she was new to the hospital, not new to the public system as a whole. And so we were both kind of learning the ropes and the environment of that setting together in a way. So we really just like developed this very strong relationship. Um, 
taking care of patients together and collaborating together. And we have like a really unique primary care team, me being the RN and her being the provider, one of the providers on our team. So it's like a really rare gym of a work environment, so to speak. And it doesn't come without problems. There's a lot of problems, definitely. But we have a we have a special way of addressing those issues and just like really the secret ingredient. It's not a secret. It's just communication. That's literally the secret ingredient. <laughs> yeah. Welcome so, to the purpose of this whole project. <laughs> yeah. So like you got to the end of the podcast at the beginning. It's just communication, guys. Yeah. The standard everything. <laughs> so I, w- I want to follow. You made this really beautiful outline, which I'm going to follow it. And if we get off topic, oh, that's fine. But I'm going to follow it because I read through it and I love it. And I also appreciate how much time something like this make it, it takes to make because... Uh, I've made them. I used to make them for every single one of the episodes and it was way too time consuming. So I appreciate you for doing that. It's a lot. Um, Okay. So let's just define, because I think a lot of doctors and nurses don't work in primary care. So let's just define it really quickly. What is primary care and what does it, what purpose does it serve? I don't, I don't have the outline in front of me because I'm looking at you guys, but I can pull it up. But um, Melissa did a really phenomenal job on this outline. And I just want to take a step back and say, I mean, can you see how awesome she is to work with? <laughs> yes. yes <laughs> She's I very can. organized, puts all, like all of her heart and soul into everything. But um, in terms of the primary care defi- definition, it's really, um, I mean, it's really broad what we do. I think a lot of people think that primary care is kind of colds and um, bread and butter type stuff, but we really do disease management. So chronic disease prevention chronic disease management. It's not just chronic disease. We also see folks who walk in with more acute issues. We have to do triage, um, which I think we're going to get into further down the the outline. And that's both the providers and the nurses. Um, And then we do a lot of kind of actual social management as well, which is also further down the outline. So especially um, the the patients that we take care of, all patients have um, social... um, I'll say social uh, aspects that affect their care Mm -hmm. and social determinants of health also affect our care. A lot of our patients have um, specific situations, especially in the COVID era that are affecting them more than before the COVID era. But even then, even pre-COVID, we had a lot of folks with housing insecurity, food insecurity, um, and just kind of lack of or insufficient social supports. So we also uh, help support them there and triage them to the right resources. Definitely. Um, I worked in an outpatient clinic and it was like a multi-specialty clinic. And um, I saw a lot of these issues myself. And that's why we started talking about this problem. And I worked in Manhattan in a, in a clinic that was in an underserved population. And um, I saw a lot of how these issues affect the the medical care. They go hand in hand, like we all know. Absolutely. Yeah. This topic is really important. Just, I think it's also really important. I mean, the, the other thing that we do is we really do help to coordinate um, care for patients. So A, we have to figure out, does this patient need to see a specialist? When is the right time to see a specialist? Do we do it right now? Do we have them try, you know, try an intervention or a medication or, you know, some lifestyle modification first and then have them come back? And then at what time period do we have to see them back to see if they've been able to to make those modifications or those changes and has it made a difference. So, and then we're really regularly communicating with specialists too. So we might be sending them mostly within our system, but sometimes patients go to see specialists and we can't see their notes and it's, or the specialists can't see the other specialist notes. So we really have to try to get all the information and gather it and ensure that 
the coordination is really happening, that there's one medication that's not started that might interfere with something else that one person may not have known they were on. Um, and so our responsibility is also to really help with that and ensure that everything is kind of seamless and works well together for mm. that patient. And that's a big job. That's a really big job, especially if you're saying like you can't even see the notes of the specialist that you referred them to. <laughs> right. So we have to say, please bring me the note. Right. <laughs> um, or if they don't, then we have them signed and informed consent and we send it off to the specialist. But um, hopefully we'll get, usually we get the notes back from other folks, but it's also getting it back. When does it come back? Are you in clinic scanning it into the chart, taking the time to review it? You know, there's just a lot of pieces that go into it, but that's any practice. I don't think that's just primary care. Definitely. I would like to interject something here. Um, Dr. Singer is one of the few doctors I've worked with that actually does that. That's not (laughs) the norm. Every primary care doctor, which is like, I'm not saying they're bad. That's not, I'm not bashing them in any way, but she's just very like proactive. And that's like something that is like special about our primary care team. Like I've seen both sides of it. I've worked with other providers, other nurses, and it's like, you can have a very passive approach to primary care. And that's like, honestly, you could sum it up as like poor care, Mm -hmm. or you could have a proactive approach and like effective primary care is proactive. It has to be proactive, like proactive, like you're one step ahead, you're two steps ahead because you're trying to prevent a COPD exacerbation. You're trying to prevent asthma exacerbation or, you know, hypertensive emergency with patients with multiple comorbidities or metabolic syndrome, you have to be proactive to have effective primary care. You're so right. And primary care, in my opinion, you know, like Dr. Singer, you mentioned some people will think of it as like a bread and butter. But the reality is if you mismanage these patients, you're mismanaging them for 10, 15 years. You see massive outcomes. You see major outcomes from a mismanagement that could have been stopped from the get go. And like you're saying, if I've worked in in places like this, too, and again, we're not bashing any MDs or even nursing, too. I've seen this on both sides. But there are some people who have been in it a long time. They're jaded. They don't feel like going that extra step and faxing somebody to get the note. And they can get into a mentality where like, well, the patient didn't bring it. And I have, you know, I I have 15 more patients waiting for me. Like, I got to get this moving. I understand that, too. But then that patient is getting, like you said, poor care. And the patient may not even understand. And most times they don't understand the implication of not bringing that paper or that document from their cardiologist that happens to be in Harlem and we're in Brooklyn, like they don't understand that that could make or break their care if we know they're on Carveldolol or not. Like Mm -hmm. they have no idea. They don't even know what that is. They don't even know why they're taking it. So like that key factor of information could totally change our approach to their care. And if we don't advocate and educate and also like actively attempt to get that information, then we're going to miss a massive piece of the puzzle. I I have to have like a purpose for why I get up every morning and put on scrubs and it's hard in primary care. Like I think about it sometimes we don't get to see the outcomes that you guys do in inpatient. Like we really don't. And so no one really talks about that. Like we don't get to see, Oh, someone's in like acute ARDS Mm -hmm. or like DKA or something. Yeah. Like someone's in DKA. Oh, they're like, you know, they're septic and Mm we get them out of sepsis and then like they walk, they, they're like discharged and they came in like non-ambulatory, non-responsive. And now they're walking out discharges like, woohoo, great mm-hmm. job team. We don't get that. Like we're like, we might get like someone with an A1C of 15. And then if we're really, really lucky and we like really 
made it through to that person, you know, through like education and counseling, when they come back in three months, maybe it's nine. And that's like a win for us. And we're like, woohoo team. And like, like even just last week, we're excited because someone got their A1C down to eight. From I was going to say, remember? Yes. <laughs> that's so, a big okay, deal now, though. That's a big deal. It is. You're preventing me yeah. from getting that person in DKA, which is better in my opinion. We're preventing admissions. We're preventing readmissions. We're preventing ER bounce backs and unnecessary ER visits. And like right now, how important is it to keep people out of the emergency room? Very. Like that's like yeah. super important. Right. That one particular patient that Melissa just mentioned, you know, was a particular victory because he went for, I think his A1C was 12 and we got, it came down to eight, which is a big, a huge drop. Yeah. Right. Um, and even though he's not quite at goal, he has poor health literacy and he doesn't have stable housing and he's couch surfing. Yeah. Wow. He's, um, and he's like one of the loveliest people, but his main focus is on getting stable housing. Of course. Um, of course, which is why he comes back. He's like, do you have any update on my housing? And I'm like, that's not me. That's a social worker, but I'm happy to send you back. Um, and the housing, we have a housing navigator actually in our clinic. So I send him that's back, amazing. but he comes back to me and Melissa every time asking us the same question. But it, in the interim, he was able to get to do these other things, which sometimes I've had patients, we've had patients where the focus is so much on stable housing, which of course it would be, right? Mm-hmm. That there's just no room to focus on these other things or resources. So we did a little dance the other day and we celebrated with him. Um, and it was, a, it was a nice moment. That's amazing. I love that. Um, and yeah, a lot of credit to him because if I don't have a place to live, is getting my A1C going to be my focus? Absolutely not. Absolutely yeah, not. Exactly. Because you're living in a, a constant state of stress. Exactly. And it's just like those little, little victories. Like the other thing that makes pri- our primary king our, I'm talking all over myself, our primary care team is so special and so unique. And I would argue to say that we're effective <laughs> um, is that we like make a huge deal out of those little, little victories. Like we like all went in the room, like, and it was so silly. And it's like eight o'clock at night. Cause we have like late clinic, which is another yes. like great aspect of our team. We have late night hours mm-hmm. for our patients. And a lot of them can't come till after six, seven o'clock. And we like go in and we're clapping and mind you like this patient, primary language is Spanish, which like Dr. Singer's fluent. I'm learning Spanish. Our, a lot of our PCAs speak Spanish, which are patient care assistants. If people are listening and use other terms, MAs or PCTs, but they're patient care techs. And th- we go in and we're like, Felicity Dallas, congratulations. I'm like saying it wrong. Dr. Singer's teaching how to say it. And we're like clapping. And then I have like this little like printout and it, it's actually a really great printout of the A1C and it's a measurement like guide and it shows the A1C in relation to your average fasting finger stick. So it's like 10 is red and then like eight is yellow and then seven is green and then it gets like more green and then blue is five. And it shows the patient and it's like, it's very visual. So even if you don't understand English, even if you can't read, which a lot of our patients cannot read or have very basic reading comprehension, Mm -hmm. like third grade. Um, It's a great tool because when I show it to patients and like break it down for them, I'm like, look at this. This is where you are. See the red? It's bad. And that little like graph, when I show it to them, nine times out of 10, I see a light bulb go off in their head and it's like, oh, Mm -hmm. like it clicks. It just clicks. And it could be even someone with not basic reading comprehension. Like the average person walking down the street doesn't know what the A1C is, doesn't know what it means. Like, oh yeah, I heard about, I heard about that on a commercial with Trulicity. What is that? Like they, they know about it from like diabetes commercials. And we shouldn't 
we shouldn't expect them to know those things, right? Like we went to college no. for this. This is what we do daily. We shouldn't expect the average person to know that. So even if like you're saying, maybe this person has a master's degree, but that graph, it breaks it down really quickly and really simply for people. And it also, sh- it, it's, it's visual. visual. It also purpose. just shows that like you care. You're saying like, look, this is, you're in the yellow zone. We can get you to the green zone and I care about you and I want to see you. And now you have a follow-up appointment, you know, that it does matter. Exactly. Absolutely. I want to hear the issues that you guys both see, you know, doctor and nurse roles. What are the problems that you see? What are the barriers to care in this setting? So, yeah, I mean, the list, the list is unfortunately long, but I think one of them is these things we were talking about, right? Social determinants of health. So um, the patient population that we see, often their focus is just getting the roof over their head, putting food on their table, which of course that would be mine too, if I were in that situation, right? That um, So I was going to tell a story, but I'm going to go down the list. I mean, I have had patients who literally come to see me and they're like, I just can't do any of these things until I figure out my apartment or my housing situation, right? It consumes them. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it, it would for me too. Um, so I think that that's probably number one. We do have some resources to help support them, but the housing list in New York City is long and there are certain reasons you get prioritized and some of our folks just won't get prioritized and some will. Okay, so that's for housing. Um, that's one. Two is uh, paperwork. There's a lot of paperwork mm-hmm. and it, it it's, it's really challenging sometimes to figure out how to get it all done. And that's where teamwork comes in, but it also just, it's like, I just need to find the time and carve it out and do it. So does your work environment give you admin time or does it not? Ours does. We get an admin session a week. Um, is that enough? That's a whole different discussion. I think it depends on the clinical practice you work in, the types of patients you see, um, and, and, and who fills out the majority of the paperwork. Like Melissa, Melissa and I tag team a lot of the paperwork or um, our social worker does like M11Qs for housing, for home health aides, um, which is a huge help. What else? Uh, communication with other providers. Can I, can I ask you a question really quick about that? It, do you think sure. that you have more, is it primarily because it's Medicaid, Medicare patients? Is that why you have more paperwork? Or is it just a general, you have too much in general? It's hard for me to say because I've never worked private practice, so mm-hmm. it'd be unfair for me to say, but I can tell you that we have a lot. I've heard from from colleagues and friends of mine who work private that they have a lot as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if in those practices, well, I do know that in some of those practices, it's not the provider filling it out. But like I said, in, in our practice, it's not me who's the only one filling it out. Melissa has a ton of paperwork. Right, <laughs> right. Our social workers have a ton of paperwork. So, um, so I can't compare it exactly, mm-hmm. but I can tell you, it's a I, th- lot. I think we all have a lot and I think it's growing in general, yeah. um, in primary care and in medicine in general. And then I think, um, communication with specialists who are not in our system can be a challenge. Um, and then, uh, time. So I was having this conversation with somebody actually just this morning that, you know, I do happen to speak Spanish and I've been signed off to speak Spanish with my patients. But so most of our patients that I see speak English or Spanish or both. Um, But I do get patients who will speak Arabic or when I was at my last job, speak um, Chinese, either Cantonese or Mandarin. Obviously, you have to use the interpreter phone. And we we actually get 20 minutes per visit, which is a luxury. Some people only get 15. Mm -hmm. Um, But even that's really tough when you're speaking with a language discordant patient, like someone whose language you don't speak just because the interpretation 
takes so much time. But take that out of the picture. I speak the language of most of my patients. It's really hard to get everything done in that period of time. Um, and there are other distractions going on. There's knocks at the door. Um, it's not like you have 20 minutes just to focus on that patient. Sometimes you do, but uh, there's a lot going on. Um, so, And even if you do, and prim- it's, sometimes it's not enough. Sometimes it's not enough. And I think the other thing that's really interesting about primary care is that each provider's panel, any provider who's been at a certain clinic for long enough or a certain job for long enough, they ha- they build a panel that has a unique personality. People don't think about this, right? So I like to talk. <laughs> Melissa and I are kind of chatters. So, and our patients like that, like they select you. They don't have to stay with us, right? Right. And so then that becomes part of, oh, hey, how's your daughter? You know, how's that going? Because like you remember from the last time. And so that's part of the relationship. It's part of the therapeutic relationship and it's important. But that also takes, it t- takes a minute, but it's a minute less than 20. Right. <laughs> so, so it's just, if you don't want to be robotic about it um, and you want to be a human, uh, which is what we all want. And I think why our patients pick us um, partially then it just takes longer. So I think that's a struggle no matter what. On the other side of it, you have to be able to see a certain volume in a day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, from t- to keep the doors open, frankly. So, I mean, it's it's a true it's a true battle sometimes between like, I just can't take care of all your needs in 20 minutes. Definitely. So let's focus on what the real priorities are here. Definitely. Do, do you feel yeah. pressured as a provider? Um, like you're saying, like the volume has to be the volume. Like I, I was literally told one time at a place that I worked, um, I was trying to come up with all these initiatives and like ways that we could like streamline it so that the patients could have more time. Cause we had 15 minutes, like you're saying, and like 15 minutes for a palm patient or a renal patient. And, and especially when, you know, maybe it's a resident based clinic or something where they're seeing a different provider and they have to re-explain their problems. I mean, 15 minutes is almost nothing. And, and I was literally told by the management, you know, look up, up there, you see the tiles on the ceiling, you have to pay for every tile on the ceiling. And if, if you can do all these changes and still get me the same amount of money for each tile, then that's fine. But otherwise, no. And so it really can be discouraging. I mean, do you feel any of that pressure or is it, is it different where you are? So I can say we don't get that pressure in terms of you know, you have to pay for your, you, you've got to pay your way here because we do work um, in the public sector, which is nice. But that being said, um, I actually wear an administrative hat also, um, which I don't want to like focus on or get into, but yeah. And that, I, I don't want to get you into trouble either. So if something no, no, no. off topic, you just say it and we'll move on. <laughs> no, I mean, part, well, part of it is that you need to see a certain number of patients, um, just not just at our practice, just in general, right? Because we do have to keep the doors open, Mm -hmm. Um, but really because we want to serve our community. So how we can you see five patients a day or 10 patients a day and serve the community, right? Like Mm -hmm. you you need to be able to, it's volume, it's number of patients versus the amount you're able to do. But what a lot of folks do is they just say, look, we can focus on three things today like when I'll see you back sooner. Mm -hmm. And that's completely legitimate too, as long as there's capacity to see them back. So then it's, then it gets into panel sizes, which is a whole, I could go off, we could talk about that for hours. We Um, should, yeah. And we could, yeah, I I would be happy to. But but I think, um, yeah, a lot of, I think a lot of what providers do is they'll just do less per visit because they want to really focus on what the patient wants to focus on. So some, 
each provider does it slightly different, but they might say, what are your agenda items for today? They won't say it like that. Like, what do you want to talk to me about today? I have this one thing I really need to talk to you about today. Right. Um, and so that's other things we're going to, I'll see you back in a week, two weeks, a month, three months, whatever, depending on how prior, how high priority they are, Mm -hmm. um, to see them back. But so you need to really agenda set with your patient. And, and I think that that's how you're able to prioritize and get through. Going back to what you were saying about every patient has a different style of provider preference. It's a very true and important point. Like, and I think um, I'm even going to reference something you told me that when either you were in residency or you worked with a resident who did a study about Spanish speaking patients with interpreter phones and like their style. And there were like two train trains of thought. There was one train of thought that the patient wanted to be the their best, like wanted to feel like the provider was a close friend, a confidant. They wanted their provider to know their entire life story, know deep, dark secrets about their life and confide in them about personal family issues, their personal social history, et cetera. Then there was the other train of thought where it was like, I want to get in, get out. I don't want you to know who I'm married to. I don't want you to know if I'm married. I just want to get my blood pressure med refill and move on with my day. And it's so interesting because I see both sides of that spectrum. And then I see everything in between. And there's, and I also see how patients that prefer the latter, like the in and out cut and dry, nice doing business with you. Thanks for my med refills end up with like one particular provider that is very much like clinically, medically, they're phenomenal. And I would like feel comfortable with them caring for a family member, but like socially they suck. Like they, (laughs) like if I was, if I had like, if I had like an emotionally distraught person, I would be concerned if I sent them to them. Like they would be like, stop crying. And like, but then if I had like an emotionally distraught person that was like bored, like, you know, like very depressed, like acutely depressed, I would feel very comfortable sending them to someone like Dr. Singer, who's going to like hold their hand Mm -hmm. and give them tissues, but also take great care of them medically. So like you need both ends of that spectrum because every Everyone has different personalities. So you guys said that you are operating under a grant. It's a city of New York grant. Um, but you have how many how many primary care providers that are not residents that are there consistently? I think it's like 15 or 16 in medicine. But if you add Jerry and CIH on, it's about 25 or so. Wow. And but in our, they're there every yeah. day or they take turns. How does that work? It's four days. So it's it's four color teams, red, green, yellow, blue. And each team has two to three NPs and two to one to two MDs. And how many nurses? Ideally, each color team is supposed to have four RNs and three to four PCAs. How many, how many patients do each color team see per day? Anywhere between 30 and 80. It depends on the number of providers. I know that's a that's a broad number, but it depends on the number of providers on that day, and it depends on okay. the residents. It's big. These teams are big. Yeah, it's huge. It's massive. Um, Dr. Singer, do you think that if you didn't have this grant, like since you mentioned that you're in administration, if if you didn't have this grant, do you think that you would have even, it sounds like you could definitely use more resources, but it also sounds like you guys do have a lot of resources. Do you think if it wasn't for this grant, you would have those resources? I, I'd be honest with you, I, I wasn't aware of the grant, um, that it's through the city, that that's how that they fund the nurses. So, um, 
I mean, I think that the city hospital system would find a way to get us nursing staff that we need. And in fact, there are centralized models of staffing that will suggest, you know, for primary care, this is the staffing ratios that we suggest and they'll fund it, whether it's through a grant or if it weren't, I think that they would find other ways to fund it. Um, So that is kind of above the facility level in a way, like that's something that's kind of more centrally managed. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think from a nursing perspective, we would, I mean, the the problem with, (laughs) the problem with the nursing that we have, um, the resources we have is that we have a decent amount of turnover. And so that's tough. Um, And I think that that what happens is then it leaves the nurses who are working there, like Melissa, with just more on their plate which is not a good situation in the long run because you don't want it to lead to burnout, mm-hmm. um, which, which of course it can and, and we really want to prevent. But I have to say like our, our nursing leadership does do a good job at trying to fill those gaps when they, you know, as soon as they can. But from a, from a financial perspective, your question was if we didn't have the grant, if we would not have the resources? Yeah, because um, in my experience, just seeing some of these, uh, especially if it's Medicare, Medicaid patients, um, they really will, I don't know how to word this without getting myself into trouble. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I've seen clinics like this run before and the the administration will kind of just bluntly say, look, the money is the money. You know, we only have enough money for two attendings and we have, yeah, do we have 100 patients in the morning for clinic and 100 patients in the afternoon for clinic? Yeah. And do we have one RN? Yeah. Do we have four PCAs? Yeah. And that's it. And you got to deal with it the way, you know, that's it. This is the situation. Deal with it. I, I've seen that too, because what what they will say is that the clinic generates this amount of money. It's just barely breaking even. So you can't expect us to hire more nurses or anything like that. Right. And I mean, I think that the reality is that Medicaid reimburses less than Medicare and Medicare reimburses less than commercial insurance is, right? And at our clinic, about 30% of our patients are uninsured. So, um, it, you know, we're work, we're working on a, a budget. Um, but what happens is people choose where they work and they'll stay. It, they'll stay until they reach their point where they're with their breaking point and the breaking point might be you're just you're pushing me a little too hard to see too many patients or the breaking point might be I can't take good care of these patients anymore and that's not why I got into this so I'm gonna go or the breaking point might be I'm just not making it home on time and when I go home I've got to do more work and that's not unique to underserved systems right that's I think medicine and outpatient medicine across the board we're doing a lot more like what's called pajama time where we get home we eat dinner and then we get back on our computers mm-hmm. um, and we complete our notes or we do work. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do think that there are, I think there's different kinds of pressures though in the private world, like you mentioned, no one's ever said to me, look at the tiles overhead. They've said instead deal with fewer resources, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So I think on, on average, we do see probably fewer patients than the private world does. Um, but I feel the pressure I feel the most is getting my team out on time because I stay late because <laughs> I am slow. Even the most says I'm not, I'm not like the slowest, but you know, I would stay there longer um, sometimes, but I feel like, you know, it's late and it's late for the patient too. By the time eight o'clock rolls around, everybody kind of wants to be up, the, you know, mm-hmm. patients want to be on the way home too. But I don't know. I'm kind of all over the place a little bit with this answer, but I think it's, 
the pressure of look at the tiles in the roof. You need to make sure you pay for that or the pressure of you just don't have as many resources. We're looking for somebody, but right now there's an opening and we just like, we can't afford a locums. We're not going to pay for that. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think that that's the reality of, of healthcare budgeting. I mean, I do think there are things that places can do to improve um, funding, like the electronic health record makes a big difference. So we all rolled to Epic. It'll, it was two years in October. And from a financial capture standpoint, it's a much better tool. Um, so it's able to really capture more revenue. And that's, I think, I'm, I'm assuming one of the reasons that the system chose it. It's also really good in terms of communication with the other providers and easily communicating. It's also adds a lot more, I'm going to say paperwork, but mm-hmm. it's non-paper paperwork because of all the in-basket messages. Um, so there are things that practices can do in terms of filling and coding and, and whatnot um, just to optimize it because a lot of us aren't trained on that. Um, and we don't have billers in our practices like the private sector does. But I don't know, to answer your question directly, I think it's just, there's not going to ever be a clinic that will forever have the right number of resources for the right number of patients and the right number of providers. There will always be a demand capacity issue or a money kind of issue, I think, to see more for revenue purposes, more in the private sector, I would imagine. I mean, are there things that we can do as doctors and nurses to to fix that? Because to be honest with you, that makes me sad. Like maybe the utopian person in me just thinks like, we're here for the patient and that's what this should be about, right? But like you're saying, we also have to be realistic. You got to keep the doors open, right? Is is there a way that we can maybe balance that or, um, you know? <laughs> if I couldn't answer part of this question, at least, I think streamlining electronic health records would help us immensely. I call it like electronic healthcare purgatory. So like I see like healthcare as a whole, like we're in this purgatory right now, like we're not in hell, but we're not in heaven where half of the system is still on paper. The other half of the system is still electronic. And a lot of us are wasting our time doing Mm -hmm. double work. So what I mean by that is we have a patient that is in respiratory distress in the clinic and we call a rapid response. Now I go and I write my note. I write my little focus nursing note textbook. I would be comfortable if, you know, the director of nursing read it, like everything's great. Quality management came around. They were like, this is great. And now my head nurse comes to me and she's like, you need to fill out this paper S bar. Why? Why do I need to fill out a paper S bar? Because it sits in a drawer just in case they need it. Because 20 years ago, before computers were used and before Epic existed in the clinic, they did a paper S-bar that sat in a drawer. And it's like, now multiply this example by like a hundred things. So like there's double work. I've been there. I have been there. I have done it. I have um, done an entire code in Epic and then had to turn around and write out the form that has even the wrong hospital stamp. It's like 10 years ago what the hospital used to be called and we're still, you know, faxing this paper to nowhere. And I also wonder if some of that has to do with the fact that like, okay, doctors and nurses are the ones taking care of these patients. Doctors and nurses are the ones right there. This is our clinic. We own it. Right. And not just doctors and nurses, like you're saying, there's PCAs, there's a lot of people, right. I, I, I always use those examples cause that's just, you know, who's in this group right now, but the bottom line is it's healthcare providers, right? But the administration largely, and I mean the administration above the committee that's directly above us, right? Those people, the people with the MBAs, um, hospital administrators, that kind of stuff, they're not 
the same people that are going to be taking care of these patients. So sometimes I wonder if that's the disconnect, if it's because we have people who are working in an office and why aren't we on these committees? That's my question. <laughs> why the, they need the healthcare workers in the trenches to also have a seat at the table. I'm there. I see it. I feel it. I live it. And like, if you would come down, not just through a, for a five minute walkthrough, but if you would come down and feel it and do it and live it, you would know how these decisions that are made way up, way above our heads have negative implications on the people providing care. I do have to say, and I, I, I do have a seat at the table and we can have a whole discussion about that at a different time. I don't really want to go into that, but um, it's, it's good. I think that people who are working front lines have seats at the table. And I think the more folks we get there to represent that, the better. Cause I have a seat at the table, but I work in a medicine clinic and there's realities around. And I, I try to get down and see all the different clinics um, when I can, but when you don't work there day to day, you don't necessarily form the same relationships or see the same mm-hmm. nitty gritty. Yeah. I think that when you, I think the higher up you get in any kind of leadership position, you assume the folks who report to you will tell you everything that's going on. And that's true. They should. But sometimes it's like there may be pressures or reasons to filter um, information. And so sometimes it may not be getting there in its mm-hmm. truest form mm-hmm. or if at all. Um, and just in terms of what's what really goes on, right? Because um, there's also pressure for the managers at right. each level to handle it. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard. You said that both of you, Dr. Singer, you are, you speak Spanish. Um, Melissa, you're learning Spanish. Um, I had to learn like just the smallest amount of Spanish, uh, when I was working and it was, you know, embarrassing and challenging for me, to be honest with you. Um, let's talk about racial inequality in outpatient care. (laughs) Just yeah. an easy Let topic. Throw this one quickly at you. <laughs> Ooh, what I do you mean, want to say? Okay, let's start with the basics. I mean, uh, what? Let's describe it first. On what levels are we seeing it? We're seeing it on uh, a language. Obviously, we already mentioned that socioeconomic. Um, I mean, what else? I would say that the population that we see at our clinic and in the city of New York um, is an incredibly diverse population. Diverse in terms of ethnicity, race, background, what they've seen in their life, what they've been through. A a good portion of them have seen trauma of some sort, whether it's they grew up down the block and, you know, you name the type of trauma, they may have seen it, or they've come from other countries and they've, you know, come to the States to try to get uh, more of opportunities. And, but they came from somewhere that may have been tougher um, or, just a lot of them have been through really difficult times in their lives. So that doesn't, so when you're approaching somebody just about their healthcare, sometimes those things come into play. And I think from a provider perspective, you just have to be as open as you can without having experienced things like that Mm -hmm. yourself um, to try to say, okay, well, how can I purchase or get this person to to someone who could support them? Um, But I'm kind of, I kind of didn't really answer your question. So what I would say is we we see a lot of different kinds of like folks with different kinds of backgrounds and different types of experiences in our clinic. Um, our clinic is predominantly, we see, I think like the breakdown 
We see a lot of folks who are African-American who are born in the neighborhood or not. A lot of folks have like born in the neighborhood, born and raised and lived there for decades. A lot of folks may have moved in. We have a large Caribbean population. We have a large Latino population, kind of pan-Latino, like um, from all over Latin America. Um, we have a growing Arabic-speaking population from various countries. Um, and then we have some Polish-speaking po population, although I think that that's decreasing. And then we've got a grab bag of other, other folks. And I think the breakdown of languages, we probably see, I don't know the percentages, probably 40%, 50% speak English, maybe more, probably about 30 to 40% speak Spanish, but there's an overlap because mm -hmm. some are bilingual. And then, I don't know, 5% or so speak Polish and maybe 5 to 10 Arabic speaking. And then, then a grab bag of other, other languages, Bengali also. When we're talking about, like you gave the example of the patient that you're doing a social screener on and you have to see that patient three or four times before they give you the real answer. Um, sometimes I wonder if that has to do with some of the mistrust that could be played, you know, that that we have to kind of earn trust because of some patients feel like they're not heard. Some patients feel like they're not believed, um, that they're made to feel like maybe they're hysterical or exaggerating or, you know, things like that. Um, so I guess I, that, that's what kind of made me think of that. And especially with now we're talking about the vaccine and like, how do we bring these patients in that rightfully, some of them rightfully have a reason to be fearful of, of healthcare and, you know, not of us specifically, but of healthcare in general. And how do we bring them in, you know, and show them like, we're here for you. I think that's a really important uh, topic. Um, and right. I mean, there have obviously been kind of massive uh, events in the past where um, folks from different de demographics may feel uncomfortable accessing healthcare at all. Um, but then there also might be personal things that they've gone through. Um, the fact that they've shown up to the office is the first step towards success, right? They've shown up, they've made an appointment, they've come in. So they're cap they've been, I don't want to say they've been captured, but like they're capturable in terms of the, mm -hmm. their, their heart is open to, to mm -hmm. asking for help. Right. But I do think that, <clears throat> I mean, I'm sure that I've had patients who've left me not only because I asked too many questions, but for other reasons, right? Like maybe they don't want a woman doctor. I've had people say to me, I'm glad you're a woman because I wanted a woman doctor. Equally, I'm sure there's people who haven't said to me, I don't want you because you're, mm -hmm. and I'm going to leave you. Right. Um, and you know, to some degree, that's the, that's the patient's choice, not to some degree, like that is hundred percent the patient's choice. So you want the patient to feel as comfortable as possible. So they're open, able to open up as much or as little as they feel comfortable so that they can be, have the best outcomes for them. Um, so I think that the fact that they showed up is the first step and then trying to ask things as non in as non-judgmental a way as possible, just kind of normalizing everything. And then if there's something that a patient says to you around any issue, just and that you don't understand, like get curious about it and ask them more. Again, I like to ask questions, but you know, in a way that says, well, how, I don't know how to support you with that. Like, how can I support you? Like, you can't even just ask that straight out. I, I, I'm not sure what you need here. Like, tell me more. Um, but I, I do think they have to be aware of the history, both in this country and outside of it and be consistent in our, care. If we say we're going to call, we should call. If we say these, this is exactly what this means, like call them and explain it to them. Um, I, I don't know. I think it's just consistency, being open and understanding if they don't feel comfortable with you, then they're completely their choice mm -hmm. to go see someone else. 
I think those are the first Definitely. steps. I think those are really good points. Um, the thing, the one thing I would add to is, um, we we also should be advocating for other people than look, look I'm just gonna say it right for people who can't see we're three white women right we're sitting here <laughs> you know um yes. so I think representation also matters right if I if I'm working in a profession yeah. where I don't see any African Americans and you know all of our nurses are white women maybe we need to get a guy in there maybe we need to get somebody you know who who's like you're saying speaks Spanish in there if it's a if it's a Spanish speaking population and representation is is also a good uh, you know maybe a second step you know <laughs> right and i would say our practice actually is very diverse in terms of our providers and our nursing and our pca is all of like like our actually i would say our nursing staff and our pca staff mostly mostly definitely pca staff mostly comes from the community that we serve um or represent you know from similar background um providers we have a really diverse provider group uh also so the Melissa and I are not representative, actually, <laughs> fully. So I think the most important factor for racial inequality to combat it is cultural competence. And what is cultural competence? What I mean by cultural competence is if I have a Muslim patient who's a female who comes in in a full hijab with like everything covered except her eyes, and there is a male nurse on on our team, like, he'll, and this is like, you know, kudos to him. He'll come to me and be like, hey, Melissa, do you want to do her flu shot just because I don't want to make her uncomfortable? And that's happened many times where he knows this is cultural competence that it would make her uncomfortable for a man to touch her that's not her husband. And that's a religious belief and that's a cultural belief. And we want to do everything to honor that. And so then I go in and I'll ask her, you know, would you like your flu shot? And of course I'm a female. She's comfortable with me doing that. And we've even had um, Muslim women come in for a visit and they didn't know. They just called a 1-800 number and got the appointment and they don't even speak English. So probably someone else called for them or it was through an interpreter line and they just got an appointment next available and they come in and the appointment's with a male. And then when they get there, they tell the nurse like, who's doing their blood pressure. Oh, I can't see a male doctor. I can only see a female. So now that's where my primary role comes in. Now I have to go advocate for that patient. And I have done this many times. I've been in this shoe where I go to like the little hub where the residents are. I'm like, Hey, your next patient is ready for you, but she's not comfortable seeing you. So how about we swap with, and there's another female resident. So she'll take, she can take your 220 and you'll take her 220 and then the patient will be comfortable. And if I was a bad nurse, I would just say, oh, sorry, we can't do that. This is the appointment you're with. And that would be really like culturally tone deaf and like just like inappropriate and rude. And so like cultural competence is like doing everything you can within your power to make that person feel comfortable and make that person feel valued and heard and honoring their cultural beliefs and their cultural system. That's a great way to put it. And um, I've been in a similar situation. I, I worked in an OBGYN clinic. And like you're saying, it's a 1-800 number. It doesn't, when you call, you don't necessarily get a nurse. You know, it's kind of a scheduler or something like that. And then you're, a woman is showing up for a pelvic exam and it's against her religious beliefs to have a male doctor in general, right? Um, so it's, it, it, 
yeah, let alone that. So that is up to you, like as the nurse, like 100%, like, listen, we're going to figure this out. We're going to move it around because, you know, to your point, doctor, you if you show that you care in that moment, you're going to have that person coming back. And now you've sort of captured them and now you can sort of help them make the best choices based on their culture and their background and their religion, you know, and that's the point, right? Right. It's really about meeting the patient where they're at as much as we can. And as much as we can be aware, and to Melissa's point, it's about trying to anticipate where they're at without making too many assumptions, but some you can make, right? Like about, you know, the woman who came in who can only see women providers, right? Um, but but not trying to make mm-hmm. too many other assumptions, like really trying to meet them where they are and mm-hmm. assess where they are and then go, and then rolling with that Definitely. and going with that. Um, okay, ladies, I think that's a really fabulous note to end it on. We have... We have so much more that we didn't cover. If if you yeah, we're halfway, which actually I think is a perfect line right there to draw. If you guys want to like get together and figure your availability, if you want to come back, you don't have to. No, no pressure. But I would love to have you back if you're available. I can do a part two. Sounds good to me because we didn't even get into like how we collaborate and coordinate around specific patients and like the different roles there, which is huge because I couldn't. I couldn't as a doctor take care of my patients without like Melissa and like my, and the PCA, like I, and like we're a team, we're a true team. So I'd love to like Mm -hmm. get into the nitty gritty of that, but yes, we should, we should figure out some time. It's really special because from what I've seen and heard and experienced, like our team dynamic is like a diamond in the rough. Like it's very rare. A lot of people do not have this. Like a lot of nurses can't stand the doctor they work with. They don't respect them because (laughs) They don't feel heard or they feel, you know, dismissed and not going off on a tangent. We'll save that for next time. But it's very special and I want to highlight it and shed some light on it and maybe hopefully inspire some other nurses and doctors out there to collaborate more together. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. I I really appreciate both of you making the time and it sounds like you work at a fabulous place and you're collaborating and you're hearing the patient and I love it. I love all of it. I'm so happy to have you guys. Thank you for having us and thank you for doing the podcast. It's awesome. We'll speak again soon. Yeah, we'll talk again soon. Okay, nice meeting you virtually, but nice meeting you. Hopefully after this is all said and done, we could have like a girls night. Margaritas. (laughs) I'm in. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Beautiful. All right, stay safe. I'll see you guys soon. Take care. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Thank you so much to our amazing guests. If you want to support the show, you can like or subscribe. You can leave a comment. These are free ways to support us. Um, Also sharing, um, that helps us a lot. Um, If you have any topics or submissions, if you have any critiques for the show, things that you'd like to see more or less of, give us an email at rnmdpodcast at gmail.com. Give us a follow on rnmdpodcast.com. Instagram or my personal page, The Nocturnal Nurse. Okay, we'll see you guys again soon. Until then, bye bye.